Greetings, you pop culture junkies, and welcome to Raw Rant, where honesty is the game plan and truth is the destination. We're hanging out here with some of our favorite sweaty nerds to hopefully stimulate your brains and recharge your geeky souls. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Shane Montgomery, and with me as always, rocking the boards, is my brother, Brian Montgomery. Thank you. It works this week. (laughs) And joining us tonight on Raw Rant is a man who has helped fill our empty Star Trek hearts. Picard Season 3 co-executive producer, Christopher Monfet. Glad to have you here, Chris. Thank you. The different applauses. <laughs> also joining us directly from the Burnett work, our one and only Duke of Discourse, Robert Meyer Burnett. Robert Meyer Burnett! It's a great pleasure to be here. We're going to talk some Clive Barker, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, oh, that's that's what we're talking about. Damn it. Clive Barker. Uh, I want to talk some of Magicka, yet, man. If he does oh, show up, hopefully he will. He's not crashed out sleeping on his floor somewhere with his dog, Worf. Uh, <laughs> the Dave Cullen. I don't, I don't see him here. He's not here yet, but oh. we got we to gotta give him that because later on, I'm not going to give it to him. So. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> and last but not least, if your diet is low in sodium and you need someone as your wingman at any Las Vegas convention, Matt from the Salty Nerd Podcast. Getting salty! Oddly enough, I'm not the saltiest one, though. Like, uh, that, that title belongs to my co-hosts. But, uh, okay, now quick to be here. And good. Sorry, uh, I was just gonna say, like, I'm wondering what the future of uh, Captain Georgiou is gonna be now that she's an Oscar winner. Oh well, let's hold up on that thought because that actually might be good. <laughs> but before we jump into the panel with our amazing guests, I want to thank Extra Wallets for sponsoring today's show. There may not be any need for a wallet in the future of Star Trek, but it's a necessity for us in our daily lives now. And oh boy, did we find the last wallet you will ever need to own. We have discovered the most efficient smart wallet in the world, and it's made by Exter. They have revolutionized the wallet, and we will never go back to Bifold. Super slim, sleek, and futuristic Exter wallets can fit in your front pocket and still hold up to 12 cards. This high-quality wallet combines Italian leather, space-grade aluminum, and carbon fiber with built-in RFID blocking to protect you from wireless theft. Oh, yeah, it comes with a tracking device, too, so you'll never have to worry about losing your wallets. Check out Extra Wallets right after this video. The link is in the description below. Go to shop.extra.com slash thepopcast and get 25% off your order when you use the code thepopcast. Now, let's get to Picard Season 3. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You, Terry, and the team have given us an incredible treat for the final season of Picard. Can you tell us a little bit about your role in the process and sort of just take us through how you guys broke down what you wanted to do this season? Yeah, of course. So I've known known Terry for almost 15 years now. We worked together on a show called 12 Funkies that ran four seasons on sci-fi, which was, you know, a really emotional, character-driven, labyrinthian, time-traveled science fiction show. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, Easter eggs and references that, that 12 Monkeys fans will, will recognize throughout the season aside, um, you know, a lot of the sort of tools and tricks that we're using this season on Picard to really elevate the characters and to really, you know, propel the story forward um, are, are kind of philosophies and things that we learned and developed on, on our time over there. And so um, in some ways it, it was a really terrific, uh, it was it was a really terrific four season practice session for being able to sort of inherit this particular 
mantle and to try to do it justice in, in a way that I think the fans will are hopefully um, enjoying and will realize that, you know, the, the amount of love and respect that we pour into it. So um, when Terry got brought over for season two, uh, you know, he, he reached out to me and, and asked me to come along with him. And, um, you know, we're both obviously not just science fiction fans, but specifically Trek fans. Um, and, you know, season two sort of, un, un, sort of unfolded under the supervision of Akiva Goldsman, who was really sort of shepherding that forward at the time. And so while we were trying to, through COVID and all of that, help him execute his vision of that second season, um, you know, we were really planning for what we wanted to do in season three, um, you know, when Terry really did fully take over the mantle and, and we got the keys to the car in a lot of respects. Um, and, you know, those conversations happened over a very long time about how it was going to be best to take these iconic legendary legacy characters and treat them with sort of uh, respect and with grace and um, make them familiar, but also find them in different places in their lives. And, and then also how not to how to restrain ourselves in the way that they come into the story. So that you're not just sort of vomiting out nostalgia from moment one, right? That it's not just, look, they're all together in the first episode. You know, um, it really was about what is sort of the last meaningful emotional story of Jean-Luc Picard? And then how would all of these people fold slowly into it as that story plays out? Um, and where would we find them in their lives that's meaningful and speaks to the themes and all of that? So sort of a long-winded answer to your question, but, you know, we, we really came into it with, respect and passion and an understanding of the ground that seasons one and two had tread and a real belief of where we thought it needed to go in season three. Um, and we were lucky to be given the freedom to, to do that. So, um, you know, the fans will be the judge of whether we did it well or not, but, um, you know, hopefully people seem to be loving it so far. So. Yeah. The feedback seems fantastic is fantastic so far. Um, so what do you guys attribute to the success? What's it like in the writer's room? Tell us, uh, you know, I think that's what everybody wants to know. This that's how where the where the recipes come together and you actually cook this great meal of of yeah. whatever show you're making. So what's it like in the writers' room? And you guys were together on Twelve Monkeys mostly, right? So did yeah. the team come over and 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 how does that help? Build no, it was it was an interesting mix. We had, we had some monkeys vets and and we had new um, new writers who had come into the process. Uh, you know, just with Picard and with Trek and. Um, you know, Terry has, I think Terry's gift as a showrunner, right? Is like, he doesn't know how to play the instrument. He knows how to play the orchestra. And so he builds a writer's room of people who all have very sort of specific skill sets. And then he knows how to apply those skill sets to the story he's trying to tell. So, you know, he came in with a vision for the season, sort of thematically, what's it going to be about? Narratively, what are some sort of touch points that we want to hit? Um, but everybody in that room sort of does a certain thing well. And, you know, what we were really honored to do is not only be given the freedom to write to our strengths, but to all work on the show together, right? So it was never, you know, Chris, you write this episode solely. This person, you write this episode solely. It was a getting to know who sort of best represented what different ideas and points of view. And we all got to sort of sing together as a choir. So there are a lot of voices in every script of the show. Every script is made better and more consistent 
and elevated because as you go through the process, you get a real sense of who writes best for who, like who's good at action, who's good at high concept thinking, who writes Picard well, who writes Riker well. And once you sort of get to know that and you get into that groove, you all start chipping in and it really becomes a tremendously collaborative process. And so, you know, hopefully it feels like there's a consistency of voice uh, across the season, um, not just Terry's vision. So. Awesome. Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, one of the things from previous, and we're not going to beat up previous Star Trek seasons here, but uh, one of the things that was was really obvious about the first couple seasons of Picard is there were a lot of, in our opinion, plot holes, uh, things that just didn't kind of get meshed with well. Do you guys sit down and like draw up a plan and like, do you address each idea and go, okay, well, how do we make that pay off? Or, you know, how do we make sure that that we don't leave anything behind? Do you guys have a process for that? Yeah, I mean, it. a lot of it is, you know, seasons, season one and two in, in some ways, and, and, and it really is because there, there are fans of the show who, who really do like those seasons. Like, you know, um, some prefer one, some prefer two, some don't like either, and that's fine. Like, every that's the great thing uh, about Trek is it's, it's a very large umbrella, right? And so, you know, Michael uh, Shaban had a very specific vision for season one. Akiva had a very specific vision for season two. Um, and what you don't want to do is, you know, when it comes time to exercise your vision of the show, um, to sign a retcon or pass sort of like retroactive judgment on what came before, right? So you want to pick up the baton of, of okay, we, you know, Picard has a synthetic body. To what degree do we address that or not address that. We, we have to respect that. We can't just assume that didn't happen, right? So there are certain choices that have just defined the trajectory of the story, that have defined the world, and you do your best to honor that and incorporate it into the story in what is hopefully a smart way. Um, you know, I think Dave, in, in some of his pieces, I've seen he's used the phrase, hang a lantern on, right? Like, so, you know, we hang a lantern on it. We acknowledge it. Yes, that is true. If you think that's cool, great. If you didn't like it, fine. It's not going to destroy your enjoyment of the story this season. Um, and so we just picked the things that we liked about the show that we responded to that fit with the story we were trying to tell and then just ran with that and ignored the rest. So, Hey, Chris, uh, we got a super chat from Rebecca Spade for $5. Thank you, Rebecca. She asked a question. She said, loving Picard season three right now. And she says, did you always want Todd for the Shaw role? <laughs> uh, the answer to that question is yes. Um, we, we've worked with Todd on 12 Monkeys, and we love him. Like, I mean, he is a dear friend of mine. We play in a D&D group together. Um, you never expect when, when you go on a show like this that you're going to make friends with the cast. Like, you are friendly with them. You're professional. You have bonds that are formed in the moment. But you never expect, like, all of these people are going to come to Thanksgiving dinner, right? And so Todd is one of the ones that, that Terry and I especially just truly connected to, bonded with, formed a genuine friendship. And so when we were trying to create this character of Shaw and we knew all the qualities that we wanted him to embody, we just in the room as a placeholder were like, oh yeah, okay, so Captain Stashwick comes in the room and he says this. And we called him Captain Stashwick. It just became truth at a certain hmm. point that, Nobody's playing this part other than Todd. Um, and then so, you know, he obviously got his name um, once we reached the point in the story where we uh, where folks have seen now um, where he gives that incredible sort of Jaws inspired monologue. You know, Robert Shaw as Quint. Um, we, we sort of named the character in honor of that. But we always called him 
Todd Stashworth in the writer's room with Captain Stashworth. So. That's awesome. Yeah. Was there a Deacon quality to like, so did you go like, look, you know, we got to have Deacon on a starship. You know, from 12 <laughs> monkeys. Did, was there like that thought or is just Todd is just embodies that kind of character? Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the great thing about Todd is that there are certain things that he exudes naturally, right? Humor, charisma. Um, he can play incredibly uh, charismatic and he can play very like droll and like, you know, can I come in? No. Officially, no. Unofficially, no. You know, like, you know, he just got, he has that delivery. Um, and, you know, but the other amazing thing about Todd is not just what he does naturally, it's what he can do just with his instrument, right? Like the guy's an amazing actor. And so, you know, with Todd, you know, look, we're, who you are naturally vibes with who this character is. But we also know that once you get in here and you start playing in this sandbox, you're going to be able to execute all of the things about Captain Shaw that are not Deacon. Um, and you're going to be able to make those feel original and awesome and cool. And so, you know, Todd is such a gifted actor and this is so his moment that he has earned and deserved um, that, uh, that we just kind of knew, look, even where this character does and will um, not necessarily be Deacon in space, Todd is going to be able to, you know, aim for the bleachers and smash it out of the park. We got a super chat from uh, No Money G. Thank you for this. I felt like I was punched in the face and throw down a, thrown down a start flight of stairs with the newer stuff. Love Picard season three. <laughs> That's visual. Thank you, No Money G. That's our creative goal. That's uh, when we're in the room. We're like, how do we make the audience feel like we've thrown them down a flight of stairs uh, emotionally? So I'm glad. The key is to hire Todd Stashwick. That'll yeah. solve the problem. If I had a dollar for every person who said that uh, he was their like new favorite character, I would be rich right now. Um, he's I, really come across well. You know, we knew this was probably going to happen, but I, I think everybody honestly has been taken a little bit by surprise at the degree to which fans have really um, warmed to this character and memified this character and embraced him, um, which is obviously what you hope for, right? Like you want to create a character that's going to move people and entertain people. And he's done that. And, um, you know, he deserves every ounce of um, what he's getting from this. Uh, and, and it's just it's so rewarding to see that. So what he deserves is a lead, though. I want to see him lead yeah. a, hey, a show. I tweeted out but, that they should remake the Rockford Files and make him Jim Rockford. I, look, every time Terry and I have a conversation about what can we do next or what do we want to do? It's always, you know, OK, what do we go create for Todd? You know, because we love we love him and we love to work with him. And so, you know, that would, that would be a dream. We got so a why question wasn't, from, why wasn't Aaron Stanford given a more prominent role in, uh, in Picard? Um, well, I mean, I, I Sneed's pretty great. Uh, you know, I, I think, um, I mean, he's only one episode. I, I think, yeah, I think, you know, when you look back, you don't, you don't necessarily look back at the sort of pantheon of actors you've worked with and go, how do I jam them in here? Right. It becomes about what's the best part for that actor. And if there's a place for them, um, you know, you will will reach out and include, and there will be more, you know, cameos um, as as the episodes go on. Um, got a, a question from James Hancock. Question for Chris: For fans who are coming back to the franchise, do the approach of season three? What future Star Trek projects can we look forward to? Oof, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, all I can say at this point is, you know, look forward to the next six episodes of this season, right? Like. Um, if you're liking the season, if you're loving the season, there is six more weeks of story left to tell that we hope will, will really bring you in um, and, and engage you. What Paramount and the powers that be choose to do 
moving forward is a complex alchemy of uh, you know how passionately and vocal the fans tell them that they've responded to this season, and you know just whether it's in it's sort of in their their wheelhouse and their machinations to do more. I mean, we're here, we're willing. Um, you know, I, we we would love nothing more than to continue to tell Trek stories, and certainly I know that you know um, there are plans to to continue the franchise, and um, you know hopefully we can be a part of that. So that's awesome, Curtis yeah. S for nine nine nine. Thank you, Curtis. Great choices with the musical Montoffs we all know and love. Yeah, by the way, the the music is so important. Oh my god, yes. How did you decide on the trajectory for the plot, Changelings, Lore, and Moriarty, plus the theme of the eighties movies? Great ending happening. Um. A, well, a lot of it was just, you know, you sit around, you blue sky at a certain point. Like the few, the first few days and weeks of a writer's room aren't like, okay, here's exactly, we don't, you don't come in knowing exactly what you're going to do. So some of it really is um, starting with, you know, for, for lack of a better term, it's a term I hate, starting with member berries, right? Like what are the things we'd like to revisit? What are some things that we, we took from, uh, next gen that we found meaningful or just stuck in our cultural memories. Um, but then it becomes, okay, so now that we've got this sort of soup of random ingredients and pieces. And, oh, we love lore. And I love the changes from deep space nine. And someone would go, I love majority and all that stuff. Now it becomes about, okay, you have to throw all of that sort of nostalgia love out and go, what can you do with these story elements? That's a genuine story like they all have to be earned they all have to be not only emotionally earned but narratively earned so that you're not just throwing nostalgia at people for the sake of nostalgia you're just using the reality of the world uh to tell a story and serve the theme you know and since some of this is picard where does picard what does he have to do next in his life as he looks back on where he's been these were sort of the ingredients we all collectively enjoyed as a writer's room and this was the way we could figure out how to put them together where they all felt right at where they come into the story and didn't just feel like we were like, you know, just throwing up um, nostalgia all over the screen. So. That's a good point. Gavin Blackbird for a super, uh, super sticker. Thank you, Gavin. Uh, he it's a, it's a, if you guys didn't see it, it's a heart emoji. So <laughs> he loves someone here. I'm sure it's probably Dave. Um, also from Dennis Sheridan, without spoiling anything, was there a wish list of things you wanted to include in season three? Did you get to do everything? Um, for the most part, yes. Uh, you know, the, the stuff that we... Look, there's a million things we could have done. There's a million things we'd like to have done. But the stuff that we really put out there and the stuff that we really latched on to, for the most part, we were able to fit um, organically into the, into the show. There were a couple of... Uh, you know, there's always those sort of episodes or things where you, you play around with in the writer's room where you'll go down a road and for whatever reason it won't fit or it, it's too expensive or it doesn't get you from here to here the right way. You know, that would that would normally be like if there were an episodic equivalent of deleted scenes, right? Like they would they would be the lost episodes of the season. But um, for the most part, everything that we really wanted to do, we, we, we got to do. And so I, I think we're very happy and proud. So. I got to tell you, the first four episodes are such a wonderful first act of the of the show. How, did you guys consciously decide you wanted to end that first act with uh, with such a positive, hopeful reflection on what these characters are truly all about, and like this this throwback to TNG and how we felt about the characters at that time? I mean, it, it, you really pulled off at the end of episode four that that sort of hopeful feeling we have about these these characters. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we all we all got into this because we love Star Trek, right? And we all remember what Star Trek was and is and means to us. And so while, yeah, part of the drama, right, and the challenge of this is introducing characters who haven't necessarily had these kinds of conflicts um, and exploring those and, and, and how are they the same and how are they different? How has age changed them? And how are they still fundamentally the people we know and love? Um, so yeah, you get an you get an episode like episode three where you put those people into conflict in a way which to old school TNG fans might feel new, might feel weird, might feel scary. Like oh, I don't like Riker Picard like this. Um, but the goal is never to linger in that for long, right? The payoff to that needs to be we're going to circle back to the spirit of Star Trek, and the spirit of Star Trek is those characters who were just in conflict one episode ago, sitting on a bridge looking at the birth of new life because they've just worked together to overcome a, an incredible challenge, right? And so, you know, none of us um, came to this wanting to sort of spit in the eye of the Star Trek we grew up with, right? You, you wanna honor that, you wanna put that on screen, you wanna celebrate it. Um, and so as much as three and four are a little bit of a two-parter, it was just, you know, um, how, do we, how do we create a little drama to get to this place so that that place has more impact than if we just started there, so. Well said. Um, so talk a little bit about uh, Worf. So Worf and Rafi in the upcoming preview to episode five we have coming that we, if you guys watched um, the, uh, what is it? The after show, I guess on Paramount plus um, they actually showed Worf and Rafi having a scene together. And then we find out that um, that Daystrom is, uh, is not letting them come. So they've been denied access to Daystrom. Can you explain a little bit about the relationship of Rafi and Worf, why you guys paired them together and, uh, and, and kind of what was the motivation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, a, le a good chunk of that motivation is, is we love Michelle. Um, you know, uh, the, that character, Rafi as a character, is so, um, you know, she, she, she's so endemic to the series, right? Like she was just, she was there in the first season, there in the second season. Audiences loved her. Um, she had such a great rapport in season two with with Jerry, and has such a rich history with um, Patrick. Um, that what you don't want to do is sort of come into a season like this and throw out everything that came before, right? And certainly, certain actors uh, and characters, their stories resolved in season two, and they didn't come back for season three. But Rafi was always a character we knew we wanted to bring forward. We knew there was more story to tell uh, with her, um, and we knew that we could utilize her. Uh, in a way that served our story and also grew her character. Um, and so, you know, we put her on this sort of spy path. And, you know, what happens when you take the ex-addict and, and they have to go down the sort of rabbit hole, right? Um, once again, what is what temptations does that bring in them? And, uh, you know, and pairing her, you know, with, with Worf, who has this new sort of worldview of, yeah, I'm very much a warrior monk. I'm still... I'm still the wharf with the swords. I'm still the badass. I'm still in action scenes, but you know, I'm going to keep the fire of this character contained and teach her how to focus all of that energy and passion that she has. So it just felt like a natural um, pairing. And those stories will, you will find very quickly um, merge with the story of the folks on the Titan. And you'll see how we are telling one complete story. Uh, got a super chat from Brian Harvard. He says, uh, as an important as this discussion is, I need to know R&B. How are those puppies doing? Uh, they're getting bigger every day. Uh, so yeah, it's terrifying. 
Also from it's, Rebecca. To, to have Spin. new life. <laughs> Rebecca Spade, another question. Question for the panel. What's your favorite episode this season? Mm. Episode four, no doubt. The ones that have aired, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those so good, far. That's, that's a great you know, question. Some, some of us aren't cool enough to get to hang out with Terry Metalis. <laughs> no, I think episode stuff. four episode four is a banger of an and and it's what i love is you guys and i was going to ask you this i guess as a question since this came up it feels to me like you very consciously wrote a movie over 10 hours episodes one through four are act one Mm -hmm. uh episodes five through eight are act two and nine and ten are the mic dropping climax (laughs) and i think it's really interesting uh, an interesting approach to serialized storytelling because it seems it works really really well like if you were to take episodes one through four and watch just those i mean it would be a sad that'd be a satisfying movie to go see in the theater and then knowing that there would be a movie in two years or a year later was that something you had thought about doing uh intentionally in terms of structuring all 10 episodes that way um I, I we just knew we wanted to tell one cohesive story and i and i think what um we've learned and maybe this is to some extent a carryover from what we did on monkeys mm. um the interesting thing about monkeys is it's this crazy labyrinthian time travel that connects in the first episode connects to the last episode you know whatever but um what we always tried to do is while you're telling you know this ongoing story you're telling these episodic adventures right so that you feel at the end of every episode that you got a meal, right? It had to start, it had to finish. It wasn't just like you could have cut anywhere, right? Um, and so, you know, I think that is very much part of Terry's, you know, ethos, right? Which is every episode needs to feel like its own complete thing. And then those things in total need to feel like its own complete story. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, in some ways, one to four is its own thing. You could kind of argue one and two is a two-parter, three and four is a two-parter. Five and six, I think, actually, of all of the episodes of this season have the most individual identities. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't necessarily feel like a continuation of each other. Um, whereas I think seven and eight and nine and ten are very much kind of like two-hour movies. Right. Uh, but really, it's just what gets you to tell the best story. And- yeah, Super Chat from Maria. Much love to all involved in the show. Love season three and keep the Super Chat, guys. Thank you, Maria. <laughs> um, also, um, uh, I... I'm sorry, real quick, a dangerous question from Dustin Cole. And that's I say dangerous because I'm not sure how you even answer this. Is there a specific member berry, or I, I like to call them Roddenberry, you wanted to but couldn't make it work? Hashtag cherry trick. Um no, not really. I mean, there are certain storylines. Uh I, I don't know if I'm allowed to to suggest that we explored. Um that would have <laughs> How do I say this? It would have revisited some interesting emotional characters from Seven's past um, uh, that we we would have liked to have gotten to. Unfortunately, we just didn't have the bandwidth in terms of where that would have fit into the story uh, to do it. Um, but Tuvix. you know, I knew it. It was Tuvix. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, it, like I said, we were really blessed to get to do almost everything that we we really passionately wanted to do this season. Cool. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, the inspiration from Wrath of Khan because the first four episodes seemed like uh, like oh we're gonna do our version of Wrath of Khan with the next gen characters and there's a lot of nods to it um, so I wanted to know what was the thinking behind like hey why don't we throw in the best Star Trek movie into the best season <laughs> of the card? Um, there's a couple of interesting I think uh, 
answers to that question. Uh, one of which is the the comp we used in the room more than anything was actually Crimson Tide. Um, you know, that was very much how do we create Crimson Tide with Picard and Riker? How do we do a submarine story? And so to the the extent that that story is a nautical story, to the extent that we have a charismatic uh, villain, you know, um, there are there sort of DNA similarities? Yes. Um, but in some senses, it's on, that's only because Wrath of Khan was so... Can I curse on this? Am I allowed? It was so yeah. successful at uh, making uh, taking that story and imprinting it on the creative lexicon of writers that followed that you can say any number of them. You could say, well, yeah, Crimson Tides is a Wrath of Khan movie in some ways, not always, right? So um, what we tried to do is we, we tried to do our best version of a Crimson Tide story and, and our best version of a charismatic uh, villain who um, ultimately has a very, I think you will find, um, human and empathetic reason for what they want. Uh, and and I think those things have just become synonymous with the Wrath of Khan template. So in as much as we can give a playful wink and a nod to what came before, great. It was never intentional to do that. It was always, how do we just tell a tense, nautical, sinking in sea story that puts these two iconic characters um, at loggerheads with each other um, under the pressure of a um, unique foe, so... Crimson Tide with jellyfish. That's funny. yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, well, we got a question nice... that I'm pretty yeah. sure you can't answer. Uh, but from Foxhound, do we get any Janeway? And I'm I, thank you for the super chat, but there's no way we can answer that question without a spoiler. Uh, no, um, I, I will not answer this question. Uh, because <laughs> and, and it's not not to be obtuse or anything. It's that to give those kinds of answers suggest that you know you could just ask these questions and if i answer them honestly eventually you'll be able to figure out what is or isn't in the show right um so you know i just let let the surprises be surprises and uh and, and hopefully you like them so chris you know what i keep doing every time someone asks me a spoilery uh question i just respond with the uh, the spock eye eyebrow raise and says fascinating <laughs> I have I no idea how to answer. So, well, you know what's funny is, out of all the people on this panel, I'm the only one who hasn't seen the full season. <laughs> so I'm sitting here. I'm, I'm like, does Janeway appear? Do we get Wesley Crusher because he was at the end of the last season? Does he show well, Matt, Matthew, don't feel so bad. I've only seen the first ten. So <laughs> <laughs> I've also only seen the first ten. So I was just, I was just telling Terry the other day that um, I always loved it. I'm a big Doctor Who fan, and so uh, I, I loved it during Stephen Moffat's. Uh, tenure where he would always say he would always kind of joke there's a line throughout the show that he would go with the doctor lies right um and then every now and then he would say and so do i and so when people would ask him spoilery questions he'd just lie and then when they were like well hey that's not what happened he just went yeah i lied to you because i want you to be entertained and enjoy the show so i told terry you should just start lying you just when people ask you things just say yeah yeah it's totally in the show uh, so you mentioned Seven's past a second ago. So recently Robert Beltran came out and said that he uh, was being considered for something in Picard season three. Can you, t I don't, I know we've got episodes to go, so it may give away something, but is there anything you can say about, was he planning to be on the show or was there an attempt to get him on the show? And if so, in what way? Uh, no, that was specifically in reference to season two. Um, so in, in the first two episodes of season two in the sort of alternate history, you may remember that Seven found herself married to a particular, uh, you know, dictator magistrate character who would have been, um, you know, we briefly entertained the notion of could that be sort of like an alt mirror Chakotay. 
That would uh, be so rad. You know, and um, you know, we went we went down uh, that rabbit hole. I think a, a little bit, but ultimately decided to go um, with just the sort of the one particular more generic character because it felt like you were bringing a lot of emotional baggage and questions into that episode at a time when you had a lot of sort of logic uh, and plot questions that needed to get answered. And so, you know, we, 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 we weighed uh, either or whether to make it a, a, a legacy character or a, a just a, a regular sort of dictator character. Uh, Chris, I, I was wondering, so one of the biggest critics of previous Star Trek has been Red Letter Media. Yeah. And they've come out and, and they're like, we really want to like this and, but <laughs> and still not quite on board, but the writing seems so much better. Like, like do, do you guys look at someone like them who've been famous for like just being very poignant with their criticism and, and be like, hey, we're doing something right if we're winning the, the RLM guys over? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't, I don't think it's, it's necessarily about, you know, how do we put this? Uh, I, what we wanted to do was create something that we first and foremost were proud of, right? And when we wrote the scripts and started shooting and started seeing cuts and started seeing the score and started seeing VFX, and we, we really got a sense that I think this is working, right? Like I think this is going to be in the ballpark of what we hoped it would be and what we intended. Um, it then becomes about, you know, well, well, look, the, the people who are critics of Star Trek, who are critical of the, either of, of a specific show or the broader a tone that the series may have taken over the last couple of years, those people are not wrong. Um, they're valid in their criticisms. Those criticisms are true and personal for them. And so the real litmus test for us of whether what we did had consequence and mattered and was respectful was it folks like you guys, uh, Dave, Red Letter Media, whoever, um, you know, Robert, like, you know, you were in some ways, uh, you know, I, I know you saw them on your own and then eventually, you know, uh, started corresponding with Terry. Um, it was, that began to be the proof, right? That if you could sort of start to turn that tide. And turn well, can, the, I, can I get a t-shirt that says that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that maybe maybe we had we had landed where we hoped to land. And, you know, so it's important to Terry and it's important to me and all of us um, that, you know, we want the gamut of fans from the folks who were pre-programmed in their DNA to love it no matter what to the folks who are going to be the harshest critics um, to love it because we paid careful attention to it and we honored what they want Star Trek to be. So we have a super chat from uh, one minute. Uh, No, it's all yours, bro. Uh, Super chat from Foxhound. Can't how how can we show Paramount that we want more from Chris and Terry? Can we hammer home how much we want this style of Trek? Yes, terrytrek.com. <laughs> um, look, if that que- to me, if, if, if that question is, is, is cast to me, look, it, like I said, it's a weird alchemy of what gets a show greenlit these days, right? Like it's, it's math, it's numbers, it's trajectory, it's Twitter, and, and it's honestly just the whims of the people who are at the control panel at the time and so um you know if but certainly it starts with um a vocal and organized fan base if if you are loving what you're seeing if you're liking even if you're just liking what you're seeing and you you want more of it um i think you know it doesn't need to be about the wholesale reinvention of the star trek franchise it can be about what's the next series after this series that is helmed and run by this particular person terry metallis with his particular vision and his crew of people um, that will give you more in the flavor of what you've just seen. And if that's what you would like, um, then I think that there is absolutely a respectful way 
to go online and to be vocal and to tag and hashtag and at and shout at um, you know uh, Paramount and and its fellow creators um, to to get this going you know because we'd love nothing more than to continue uh, to do it and, um, and and to do it the, with the passion that we apply to it um, and if that's what fans want from us we're open to do it and it just that has to trigger the other dominoes that all need to fall in the right order for that to happen. So uh, will it happen? I don't know. Um, would we love it to happen? Absolutely. How it can happen is be vocal, be loud. Um, you know, if you love the season, if you like the season, just keep saying it to the right people. So can I jump in here? Yes. Yeah, go for it. Hi, Christopher. I'm Dave. Um, so uh, I, nobody got that reference. Anyway, so I, I, had, a, I had a question about uh, episode two, and in in particular, uh, the, the reveal. We you you get a, a, a serious uh, nod to it in the first episode, of course, but revealing that Jack was Picard's son. Right. Uh, there must have been a serious balancing act there to try to get this right because you know you don't want it to linger on. Like it's a, like it's a soap opera going on several episodes. <laughs> right. And I feel that Riker is, he's sort of the audience. He's, he keeps saying to Picard, "You're you're seeing what I'm seeing here, right? I mean, you're you're getting this, right?" And so, in a way, that's that's the seed is is planted. Uh, it's it's not going to linger too long. And then in that, because you don't want it to be a case where. Picard is well behind the audience and they figured it out first, right? Right. And they're going, well, you just figure it out, right? And then in, in that last scene with that beautiful unspoken moment on the bridge between Beverly and Picard, um, I don't recall if we've ever seen anything quite like that communicated in that way between characters on Star Trek before. Yeah. So, and, and there are so many moments, and I've said it to the guys before, and there's moments in episodes that haven't aired yet, uh, this season more than anything have, have touched those kind of notes emotionally in a way that no other Star Trek season has for me in particular. Were you nervous about that balancing act and in particular that final scene, that final moment between Beverly and, and Picard? You know, it's interesting having watched the episode and then having sort of looked on Twitter and, and followed the conversation around it and, and watching what critics are saying. For us, you know, when we were writing it, um, it always felt like it really was not ever in question um, that, you know, for us, it was very much about this is not an episode that is about the reveal of a truth that the audience may suspect. It's about the acceptance of a truth that we've all already figured out. Like, I think Picard, he knows what Riker's saying. He knows that this this the clear line is that this kid is probably my son and he refuses to accept it. And so you know, we were always assuming, or not assuming, but, you know, we always moved forward from if the audience, you know, we, we weren't trying to keep it a secret. So if the audience went through season two, I mean, episode two, completely certain that this kid is Picard's son, that was less, the reveal of the truth of that was far less important than the moment that Picard accepted it and, and, and said, okay, the thing I've been trying to say no to this whole time, uh, I have to say, yes to and now emotionally invest in and take command of the situation so um you know that was the balancing act right of, of of how do we tell the audience without just coming out and saying it totally the thing you think is true absolutely true this is the story of the one man in the room who doesn't want to believe it coming to believe it 
Um, and you will find no bigger lover of dialogue than me. Um, I, I, I love dialogue. You know, I love, uh, I love clever turns of phrases. I love monologues. I love banter. I love deep emotional conversations. And so, you know, um, I'm always the one in my, with my hand in the air going, let's make it longer. Um, and, you know, it, so when you get to that moment at the end, you know, the answer really was to go the exact opposite direction. Like, there, there should be no words spoken here, right? Because it is just a simple truth expressed between two people who've never really needed words to communicate their truth before. Um, and so, you know, it was, I, I forget, I, I think it was probably Terry who came into the room and, and put that option on the table of, is it a no dialogue scenario? And I think we all immediately were like, yes, Let's save that conversation for episode three. They can have it out. They can talk about it. But this is just an emotional soul connection for these between these two people who know each other inside and out, um, admitting the same thing. And so it just it was just the right and natural way to do that. I just want to apologize for my mic settings just now. Some people thought that I was shitting on the toilet. I'm not. I just wasn't on my right microphone. But yeah. Was that Christopher joke from Star Trek 09? Was that what you were it doing? Is, it was indeed, yes. I mean, I'm like, of all the things to joke about, Dave. <laughs> I, I wanted to follow up on that on that question. One of the reasons like I was really affected by episode four, you, you were juxtaposing two men and families the idea of families and sons um and you know when Riker explains the reason that he left Deanna and his daughter behind was he couldn't get past the loss of his son the the darkness and and the idea that they've been through space and he's got no indication that there's anything afterwards and I wondered from your horror background I've always loved the idea of the Lovecraftian cosmic existential dread and I'm a big horror fanatic <laughs> and at the end of the episode where you you do two things that i thought were really fascinating one Riker says we witnessed a birth here a kind of a birth here and there's this really a true sense of awe and wonder which is something that harks back to the end of star trek the motion picture it definitely uh is echoed with or it, it was an echo of encountered farpoint and i found that incredibly moving and uplifting but then at the same time you really pull off an, a tremendous gut punch when you reveal Jack sitting at 10 forward and 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 asking Picard that conversation and I, even even talking about it now I thought what a great I mean Star Trek is after all take away all the accoutrements of the 23rd century or 24th or 25th century it's about character yeah you know and and I think what you've brought back with Picard season three is the characters that we know and love and you've built upon them because they're not the same and that moment and then you you see him say that in the flashback from five years ago and then you see the recognition on their faces in the bridge or at least picard yeah. his i thought that was a a home run in terms of setup and payoff and juxtaposing Riker talking it was great the way he's talking you think he's just recording this message but then he's actually talking to deanna yeah and those two things really worked for me and i'm like to me this is this is what i want out of out of star trek i want to feel something and i love the sci-fi action adventure allegorical storytelling but really I, I i think back to moments in balance of terror when mccoy kirk is asking why me yeah and mccoy gives that great speech about 
you know, in, the, in, in, in this galaxy, there's a mathematical probability, but there's only one of each of us. Right. Don't destroy the one named Kirk. I mean, you harked back in this episode to what I believe to be classic Star Trek storytelling. And I think a lot of people, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, but no one's really mentioning that as much as they're talking to me about Odo's bucket. And I'm like, how's a Chainsling going to sneak a bucket on board a ship? You'd, you, you'd use a replicator and replicate the one the one Changeling right. bucket they probably have and then wipe the wipe the memory if you knew what you were doing, if you were great at clandestine activities or something. So people I have these weird arguments, but I'm like, didn't you get the... When you were writing this, was was that juxtaposition something that was planned from the beginning, like, or or was it something that came organically out of what you wanted to do with episode four? Um, a little bit of both. I mean, I think a lot of it was space is a great place to ask some existential questions, right? And when you've got a character who's dealing with grief um, and and asking him sen- himself, in a sense, where did my kid go? Um, uh, when you're out there in the stars and, and, and which can be as hopeless as they are wonderful and, um, and, and make you believe in science, which would tell you your kid went nowhere. Um, but also in, in the beautiful and the spiritual, which would tell you that they went somewhere, um, that we don't want to linger. We don't want the show necessarily to, to dwell in, questions of spirituality or religion but um it certainly felt like it had a place to ask ask that question using Riker as the as the the sort of way to do that um and so you know yeah it was totally natural um and and it felt like an interesting opportunity to begin to have that conversation uh and to express um that sort of emotionality um, from his point of view. So, And the wonder, the awe and wonder of the birth yeah. of these creatures, it was counterpointed that too. I mean, it gave you that, that elation, you know, and then to see that Riker felt that and it sort of brought him out of his, out yeah. of his funk was, I, I mean, to me, this is great television writing. It's We're great not- Star Trek writing and great TV writing. Terry is not, and and I am not. And, and the, the team that Terry has been able to assemble over time um, we're not nihilists. We're we're really sentimentalists, and so um, you know, I think our our desire is, you know, if you ever find our particular characters in a degree of conflict or darkness that makes you feel uncomfortable, um, it is very likely probably trying to set up something that is going to lead you back to the light. Um, we are hopeful people, um, and I think to some extent these first four episodes um, are an effort to try to communicate to the audience, that they can trust us. Um, that whether it is something as small as, you know, you get to the episode, the end of episode two without an explanation as to why Jack has an English accent. Um, and you may be on Twitter being like, why does he have an English accent? Don't they know that accents aren't genetic? Um, trust us, we'll address it. Um, you know, and, and why to something as big as, why are these characters I love in conflict in a way that I haven't seen before, it makes me uncomfortable. Trust us, we'll resolve it. And so um, when we put in season, in episode three, that Beverly says, look, I told him where to find you. He chose not to. Um, don't worry, trust us. We will We will show you that he did, right? Um, and so, you know, hopefully when you've come to the end of these four episodes, you realize that if you have a question or an objection, 
wait a little bit. Hopefully we will answer it in a way that's satisfying to you um, because we are mindful of all of these things. So. Yeah. The trust is important. I think, you know, um, for a lot of fans, they kind of lost a little bit of that trust because the yeah. first couple seasons of Picard started out that way, I think, but uh, somehow along the way, uh, the writer's room seems to have forgotten to address some of the things that came up, but you guys have really in the first four episodes have strongly shown us, okay. Oh yeah, we can trust that. Oh, okay. Cause you're right. A lot of the complaints have been like, Oh, Beverly would never speak that way. Or, you know, how could Jack possibly be his son? And you guys really just kind of methodically go through and answer everything. And then, and then you see the fans actually in real time going, Oh, okay. Oh, I got right. it. Okay. And, and going along with, with that. So, Chris, I just wanted to give you and the writers like some props because you guys actually did something that I wish more writers of TV and movies would do. And I, I always get crap from this from my co-host on the Salty Nerd podcast because I hammer it home. But I'm like, all it takes is one line of dialogue to explain a plot hole and not break a uh, suspension of disbelief. Like yep. there are so many times where I'm watching a, a, a TV show or a movie and something happens and I'm just like, wait, why is that happening? And they never address it. I mean, your stuff with the English accent, the uh, why the um, um, holodeck is operating on a ship that has no power, stuff like that. You guys just took one line of dialogue to address it. And then I was like, oh, OK, I'm back on. Yeah. But um, my question to you in you know, having said that is where did Picard get the transport dampeners from? <laughs> Dude, uh, he he has been at Chris. He's been asking this question since episode one. He won't let it go. So no, I, hope, I hope you have an answer for him. Uh, I so I, I what I will say and what what, what mm -hmm. our internal logic this may not satisfy you. I don't know. Um, is you know there's a lot of shit on that vessel, right? It, <laughs> it, is, it is as much a medical supply vessel as it is full of contraband that mm -hmm. you know Jack has been moving across the galaxy using to barter and trade um, access to places, medicine supplies, etc. Uh, and so, you know, it was the same. It was it was a version of the answer that I gave when, uh, and that Terry gave when um, people were wondering why, like, why does Beverly have to like cock her phaser? We've never seen that before. Phasers don't run out of ammo. And we were like, well, you don't know where she got that gun. That gun could have come from literally anywhere in the universe that Elios has has been, right? And so, um, it it may not be the justification necessarily that that folks on Twitter uh, are are looking for or will accept, but these are things that we do think about, right? We do ask ourselves these questions, even if not like when we're on this, when we're writing the script, we'll be on set and someone will ask that, you know, a like a production person, sometimes even an actor themselves will turn around and be like, where the hell did I get this? Um, and so even if it's just for your own headcanon, you you do have to acknowledge and come up with answers to these. So I will exactly say- Exactly what I told them, Chris. Shit full of contraband. That's my answer. Oh, also they're doing, they're doing underhanded things to bring- you know medicine to people so it's not a stretch that there they would tr people would try and board their ship to take what they have right by force well and i think insurrection also established that every ship had those so hopefully the elios also does um but, since uh, since we're on saltiness here chris just really quick quick uh, really quick um the Picard F bomb so we've had some uh, some folks who who didn't feel good about that and kind of you know, there's there is a certain level of cussing that we're familiar with or not familiar with or not with Star Trek. How did you guys address the the cursing and, and kind of the thought process and and especially uh, Jean-Luc's big F-bomb there? Um, well, I think it's very important to sort of state up top that 
you know, for the folks on Twitter who object, I shouldn't say Twitter, for the folks in the audience um, who object to the use of that word, um, that's fine. It's totally, it is not, I will not argue if that word bristles you, if you don't associate it with the spirit of Trek, if you don't, uh, if you just don't find it palatable personally. Um, I, you know, I take no issue with people who, who will say that word didn't feel right coming out of his lips or on this show to me. Um, I will only say that I, I will happily get into a spirited discussion with people whose criticisms of that use of that word go beyond their own personal tastes and their own sort of view of, uh, you know, the level of classiness that one should um, impose upon Star Trek. Like, I do think that that word will be around 400, 500 years from now. I think if anything, language becomes more colloquialized over time. Um, so I think that the an F-bomb 400 years from now will not be nearly as bad as an F-bomb today or as it was when the word was invented 500 years ago. Um, so I, I, it is a Swiss Army word. Um, I will say this. Uh, there was one scripted use of the F word in this season, and then there was one improv use. And the one you saw last week was an improv by Patrick. Uh, right in the moment who um, was delivering that particular monologue and felt that it was important for um, Picard to have a moment where there was no facade. It was just him and his raw emotional core. And uh, he was moved to use that word. And there is no bigger protector of Jean-Luc's um, dialogue than, than, than Patrick. So, um, you know, when when he suggests it, you have to you have to listen and you discuss it. Um, and ultimately, even though it may it, and it's it may be intended to make you bristle a little bit and go, oh, 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 that's that's not I'm going to clutch my pearls a little. I haven't I haven't seen him say that it must be important and it must be human and it must be true. So but, uh, but was there was there any talk in the writer's room about how like in Star Trek four, like they didn't even know what curse words were? They, they, they had to go to the, back to the past to understand those things. Like right. there's a certain con continuity issue with like the use of cursing. It's not just that Star Trek's not family friendly anymore. It's that in canon, in the universe, like by this point, people have moved beyond cursing. They don't even know what these words mean. Sure. Yeah, um, Matt, the timeline changed when they brought the whales forward in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The whales, the whales brought the F word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I, look, that's a fair that's a fair point. I, I think that there are any number of instances uh, after that, right? I mean, Picard curses in, in, in a foreign language in TNG. You know, like um, there, I think the the idea of cursing is as much as about Kirk said, "Damn it!" Right? Like, and that's that's a that's a um, an arguable point. But like, I think that cursing has a place anywhere if it is used in the service of making a human point and expressing a truth. And so our barometer in the moment is, does it do that? Um, uh, and for us, it did. But for many people, it might not. Um, and, you know, uh, we're, we're less inclined to dig into, uh, you know, the, the, the minor continuity discrepancies that might exist between well, Picard clearly knows how to say shit in French, but, uh, you know, we're saying that curse words don't exist today. Um, you can have those those sort of granular conversations. But for us, it was, look, this not everyone may like this, but we think it works. We think it's true um, in the moment. We think it reveals something about the character. So uh, regardless of how you feel about it, 
I would just like fans to know it's not ill-considered. Um, you know, we, we really care about this stuff and we really have in-depth conversations about these things um, uh, in a way where I, I hope that you will at the very least laugh at the second F-bomb of the season. There's only two, I promise you. Well, there's uh, also something to say, Chris, about the fact that we're dealing with networks. So in the 80s and 90s, you obviously weren't going to be dropping any severe right. cuss words. And now with streaming, you have the ability to kind of, you know, stretch, stretch so much, you know, I mean, McCoy said, damn it, Jim. Right. So we got, there was a little bit of that in the past. So um, I'm, thank you for really just kind of laying that out for us. Cause I know that's a question people have. And I love that you said, you know, whether they like it or not, you support, you know, how they feel about it. And, but I think regardless, it's not having an effect on whether or not the season is good because it's obviously good. So let me just ask you a question about changelings because uh, we find out that Vatic and Terry just confirmed this. There was a little bit of confusion that uh, whether Vatic was a changeling or not, because uh, some people, even Red Letter Media is like, oh, my God, a changeling attached to her hand and is controlling her. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, so can you just talk a little about changelings and, and kind of what you can tell us? So far? Vatic is totally a changeling. Um, you know, that that was meant to, to communicate that mm -hmm. um, uh, who Vatic is communicating with when she she does that is a much larger mystery of the season. And, and you will find that out going forward um but uh yeah no vatican her people are 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 absolutely changelings um and you will you will get their story um at some point deeper into the season as to why they're doing this what motivates them and and hopefully you will you will understand their side of the equation in a in a, a rational and emotional way so i actually have a question so so her entire crew are comprised of changelings uh yeah I, I so I have two questions on that. Uh, I don't know if it can be answered yet. Uh, we're only four episodes in. Uh, the first one is, why are they wearing these sort of bird-like beaks, uh, <laughs> these outfits? And then the second one was, uh, they speak in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And it's as if, so I wasn't aware the changelings had their own language. Right, right. Uh, I I thought that you know they mostly would because because there was an there was an episode of DS Nine where the female changeling says to Odo that this this way the solid speak is so imprecise mm -hmm. and and that the link was the primary means by which they communicated. So can you speak to those those two things? Um, yeah, we we there there is uh, um, uh, there is a very well delivered uh, monologue a little bit deeper into uh, the season um, that Amanda Plummer gives. And some of that, their distaste for the shape, um, you know, for uh, in, in some ways, uh, you know, having to wear the face of your enemy, um, having to speak the language of your enemy, there's a certain distaste that they have for that. And so it felt interesting to us to explore, um, you know, how some of her crew, the majority of her crew may not want to do that. Um, she has embraced it more fully than they have. So that was sort of the result of a conversation about that. Um, and then, uh, honestly, I think the masks and, and are, are just an extension of... Um, it's just awesome, Dave. Can't it just be awesome. Um, <laughs> well, I thought they were. I, I thought it twice. was a twelve. I thought it was a twelve monkeys. It, it is. It is a little bit of a twelve monkeys reference. It's one gone awry. Uh, when Terry <laughs> developed that costume, it, it was very much a sense of um, 
you know, hey, a little, a little wink and a nod to the witness mm -hmm. mask from Twelve Monkeys wouldn't. And then for whatever reason, when those costumes showed up on the day, you're like, oh shit, yeah, no, it's just Twelve Monkeys. Um, so, uh, but they're, they're they're really cool, and you know, we really needed to sort of and wanted to hide the ball on whether was this a human working with an alien crew uh, was this a crew of all humans and so those those masks were a way to sort of protect a little bit of the story throughout those first um couple of episodes uh and i presume they just like them uh and so they wear them fashionably around the shrike and First obviously it would have saved a bit of money not having to put all these guys in makeup as well, right? Right, yeah. I mean, Chris, can I ask real quick, um, like if, if these changelings, like the Klingons and Starfleet and all these guys were coming after Beverly and Jack, wouldn't they have known that they were changelings after like killing them and not disintegrating their bodies? Because, I mean, it would become pretty obvious at that point that what they were dealing with, right? Um, I, I don't think we say specifically the degree to which uh, Beverly and Jack have encountered and com combated those. I don't know how many little changeling corpses have been left in their wake. Um, they've certainly had attempts made at them that they've narrowly escaped. Um, so I think that the first time she, she blows these guys away in, in, the, in the first episode, um, and when Riker comments upon the, um, I haven't seen sort of ash or residue like this, uh, is probably the first time that anybody has really asked that question. So. And you do deal with it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We got a super chat from John P. Please don't let Metallus float away to another TV show or franchise. It's the best trek since the end of DS9. Also glad to hear you're a Moffat fan. Uh, I don't want Metallus to float away to another show because if he has a job, I have a job. I want to continue <laughs> to work on this. So um, That's fair. Look, there's nothing Terry would like more than to keep telling truck stories. And there's nothing I'd like more than to keep telling him with him. So. Fox Sound, thank you for the uh, super chat. As Oz said, Picard would have said bloody. <laughs> I guess you're right. <laughs> Fox Sound also uh, said massive difference between Merida and the F-Bone. That's true. There is a massive difference. Totally true. Uh, that That's completely fair. And I'm not trying to equate. I'm just saying that there is a way in which um, language colloquializes over time and words uh, change or lose meaning or lose their sharpness or whatever. Um, and by that extension, you know, if this were, you know, what, what will, what phrases we'll be using that don't exist today that will exist 500 years from now. Right. So the linguistics of Trek has always in most large part been based on the linguistics of the year and time in which Trek is written. Um, nobody has sat to themselves, had sat down and gone, you know what, I'm going to do a Trek show where people have just elevated into iambic pentameter, um, you know, or uh, where people are using phrases like, I think frack, right, is the best example frack. of a science fiction show that was like, well, they're going to invent one new word in the next couple hundred years, so let it be that. Um, so, yeah. you know, I think it's, I, I think if those criticisms are fair if you bristle, um, but we have thought about it and talked about it. So, John Ronald P. also said the bird masks yes. fit in theme with the ship. Yes, right. totally, totally, right. totally true. I mean, they, that that was designed mm -hmm. to to look avian and to have a ship that has an avian name. So cool, Rob. No, I, I was just I was just going to say that you know, as I've often talked about how there were these books called the Best of Trek, mm -hmm. and in them they always had there was like Leslie Thompson used to write Star Trek mysteries solved, and they would ask these questions, and they would pose, uh, they would ask 
the viewer or she or he, I never knew it was a, if it was a he or a she, would come up with answers to questions like this. And I yeah. think Star Trek fans, more than any other fan in the world, try and come up with reasons for things being the way they are. Yeah. And like you had pointed out, Chris, about not wearing the face of your enemy, I just assumed that if there, if there are changelings out there, that they would be infiltrating all different kinds of species. And mm-hmm. this might be a particular... We don't really know anything about them, but it might be a particular favorite species that these changelings chose to emulate. And maybe somehow, because you don't really get into the origins of the Shrike itself, right? maybe they're connected. Yeah. You know, the idea and, and whatever power, galactic power, uh, was involved in the construction of this ship bristling with energy. like And that's where Amanda Plummer, that's where Vatic got the whole concept of a Shrike in the first place. You know, and maybe it was all like, they didn't call it a Shrike. That was her, based on what we learn about her. And it, it all kind of works synergistically that the, right. whatever the, and, and that in my mind, in my own head canon, those yeah. uniforms came from the same place or maybe the same species, whomever built that ship. And yeah. like that, like the, the viewer just said, and I, I, when I was watching the show, I just thought it was kind of a subtle, kind of a cool, and there's a 12 monkeys reference, but it worked for me only. And, and you don't really get into the origins. Yeah. We would have loved, we, by the way, would have loved to, I mean, there, there was conversations in the room about, oh man, can we do an episode in which we talk about, you know, where the Shrike was constructed, uh, how it was built, how it came into the possession like there are probably three or four episodes that if we had a 13 or 14 episode season, we probably would have answered that question. Well, that's what your IDW comic series will right. be about, yeah, you exactly. know, the, 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 the Shrike and the race of people who built it and who those, why they chose to take the form. Yeah. Or, or maybe it was changelings that infiltrated that place to get the ship built for Vatican in the first place. We've, we've talked about all of those options. So, you know, and maybe there's room to tell those stories in the future. We'll see. Yeah. We got a super chat from Garfield's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you guys for taking the time to develop Captain Shaw as an actual character with flaws and intrigue. The easy way out would have been to simply have him die and Riker take over. That's true. Uh, well, no, thank God uh, Shaw did not die um, because uh, he he's gained a legendary status very quickly. Um, and and there there is more to his character arc over the season. You will see how that character grows and evolves and changes and uh, is is challenged and ultimately where he where he where he comes out uh, in the end and so you know um, we're very happy that that Stashwick is uh, he's in all ten so another yeah. shot I, I, I cannot wait to see Star Trek dipshit from Chicago this year. yeah <laughs> well speaking of that Craig Nelson for five dollars says would there be a chance to have a Saw and Shaw and Seven and Nine series I love how they work off each other in Episode Four. Um, I hesitate to, and I've seen this question a lot, and I hesitate to answer it because uh, when we talk about spinoffs, uh, what I don't want to do is like, defang the rest of the season. Because, you know, if I, if, if I say, yeah, it'd be great to do that, people are going to go, oh, well, great. Well, we know that Sean, Seven of Nine, live. And if I say, no, we, can really, we really can't do that, well, then all of it, it's going to be, well, does one die? Or do both of them die? Or whatever. So um, I, I would only say, um, that, you know, in, in some multiverse, if, if that show existed, I'd write the hell out of it. Um, you know, they make for an, an exceptional pairing. And, and Todd and Jerry really did have fantastic chemistry uh, on set. Uh, they worked very well together um, and communicated very well as actors. And so 
Um, it's not surprising to me at all that people have taken to their relationship and want to see more of it. Certainly you're going to see much more of it as the season um, progresses. But when we get into the realm of spinoffs, I kind of don't want to answer one way or the other because what happens to what character and when uh, and the threat um, that at any point, you know, we, we could lose one. Um, I don't want to undercut that because that is a big part of the season moving forward. You are right, because a lot of these comments are talking about uh, a Titan spinoff. Like, Question and Trek says, I'm really enjoying the season, and I hope we get a Titan spinoff. Do I... we all do? So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I actually have a super chat from Echo Base. I'm in the camp of the F-bombs don't belong in Trek, but I'm still enjoying the show. Can you address the darkness of the show? What's set lighting outside the budget cost? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, some of it, uh, you know, some of it is just a creative choice right some of it is we are uh we're trying to tell a very nautical submarine story and so um you know when you when you do a show like uh, or a movie like um, crimson tide for example uh you know people aren't walking around a submarine with the lights on and uh you know you want that sense of claustrophobia and tension really weighing down and pressing upon our characters so to that extent um you know not sort of washing the palette of the show in color or brightness um, is uh, is certainly a um, it was certainly a creative a creative choice and yeah um, and just to elevate the cinema of it I mean our DP uh, John Joffin is and his his team um, you know are, were incredible uh, uh, Crescenzo who uh, was incredible um, you know these guys know how to shoot the hell out of a show uh, and you know we really wanted this season to feel like a movie um, and look like a movie and sound like a movie. There's uh, also some issues with Paramount Plus, I believe, too, right? Oh, the, the, there have been issues with uploading. I think it was two and four. Something went wrong technically where the, the lighting and the image got crushed. Uh, so at least on day one or within the first few hours of them uh, airing, the version was exceptionally extra dark. Yes. Um, and so, you know, uh, if you if you watched uh, those episodes in that window, revisit them and and hopefully it'll, they'll play a little brighter on your screen. And Apparently that was for you, Badger, for five dollars. Oh. Thank you for restraining my faith in Star Trek. But for the love of God, can someone in Starfleet buy a light bulb? <laughs> there is a handshake issue, though, between the uh, the Paramount Plus app yeah. and your TV sets, the HDR settings and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I actually fixed uh, my issue by switching from 4K to 1080p and then back, and my HDR is all good now. Yeah, I watched it both on a 65-inch OLED and my older Plasma. It looks incredible on my Plasma set. Yeah, but let's let's not make a habit of telling people to adjust their sets to watch <laughs> no, the no. Yeah. However, however, if there were maybe if there were a, a sufficient number of complaints about it, and again, I don't want to harp on about it too much. I mean, I've gotten past it and put it to bed. But the point is, there there is obviously a number of people who were not too pleased. Possibly, there could have been maybe a final a final final cut of season three for uh, Blu-ray and and DVD, and maybe there could have been a final color grade done for those. Who knows? Um, we, we I will say this that we um, to your to your someone just made the point. I forget who Robert and Brian. Um, the smart TVs um, are dumb sometimes. That's uh, <laughs> true. And what I've what I've found is I, I had the pro I had the same problem everyone had with Game of Thrones, 
Um, and it happens on weird shows right now. Like uh, I've been, I was watching a, a show on Apple the other day where it would cut even just alternating shots in the same scene. Like one would be super bright and then one would feel really muted. And so I think as TVs uh, decide to make more decisions for us in the moment, um, that is something that we do have to be mindful of and sort of combat against uh, and, and try to, you know, uh, deliver a baseline uh, visual that that you know that works for audiences. So. I will say that the last time I watched the series, it was on Blu-ray and it looked spectacular. Really? I don't know. I don't know if that was the final, yeah, um, master that's going to be released because it was only Blu-rays. I'd love to see a 4K uh, Dolby Vision HBR, HDR yeah, master. But uh, the Blu-rays, it was absolutely spectacular. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen them as well, and they're, they're gorgeous. Yeah, we got a, a super chat from uh, Big Worm. Thank you, Big Worm. So much to say, payoffs and hope, characters we recognize, building out their lives decade, decades later in a way that jives with our headcanon. This is them riding off in the sunset. I love the bridge crew. Shaw, we need Star Trek Titan. <laughs> That's another question I want to ask about one of the things I really like about what you're doing with your secondary bridge crew is there's a definitely an effort. We always get cutaways to them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I loved about episode four was sort of that Robert Altman-esque overlapping dialogue. You see everybody knowing exactly what they're doing. Yeah. And you get an idea that this is a very well-heeled, well-trained. Um, these are These are people that really know their jobs. Yeah. And how much of that was... Uh, writing and was it and you've got great actors I mean I really love everyone's faces what was that like in the writing room developing that bridge crew and in terms of did you have conversations with like Frakes when he came in and said look we we need you to pick up insert shots we really want to make sure that our bridge crew is is focused and featured yeah I mean that in some ways is is as big a challenge as you know what do you do with Card and Beverly and Riker is um, how do you not make these people who are so pivotal to the function of the ship that your show is set on incidental in these scenes, right? Like, um, it, and it is very, uh, you know, especially in a kind of paranoia thriller where, where changelings have infiltrated the ship, it becomes very important to your, for the crew to be a character in, in, in the show. And so, um, and then, and we we've had we have a lot of great uh, uh, writers on the staff, and um, you know e even just uh, you know some of our, our researchers, PAs, etc. Um, you know who would all contribute little snippets of dialogue and exchanges that we can populate these scenes in the background with, um, so that it feels kinetic and functional, like these people really are communicating and working in sync with each other to to, to ride this vessel. Um, it's, it, it takes a, quite a lot of effort, um, to, to get that right. And we were really lucky, uh, to have, um, just great, uh, actors, like all of these, like, you know, whether it's, 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 uh, you know, uh, uh whether it's, uh, it's Ashley, right. Um, as, as Jordy's daughter, whether it's Taveen, uh, the, the actress who played Taveen is, is terrific. Um, everybody, uh, has such banter and rapport, um, that you really do feel like it's a lived-in bridge, you know, that, that these people have been working together for a minute. And I don't think Shaw would run his crew uh, any any less. He would demand full efficiency of, it, of from his crew, and I think they operate like that as well. Uh, Man, Chris, can, yeah, can, can I ask you, um, mm -hmm. so the first season of Picard had this 
ginormous budget okay the return of patrick stewart stuff like that uh, i had heard talk about like up to a hundred million dollars for season one um you guys notoriously didn't have a lot of money to work with and yet season three looks better than any of the previous seasons does. so can you can you tell us about some of the challenges of working with a smaller budget and and isn't that reason why paramount should hire you guys keep doing it because you can bring it in at, a, at cheap cheaper cost um yeah i mean i, I can say this we, we learned again it, we learned a lot from 12 monkeys right mm -hmm. you're doing a serialized time travel uh show where you're you're visiting a different time period almost every week um on a relatively small sci-fi budget uh, you know, capital S Y F Y by uh, sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, um, and you know, we, we did not have a lot of money to play with. And so it really teaches you how to stretch your dollar. How do you shoot efficiently? Where do you shoot? Um, what partners do you use? Uh, and you know, we have been very fortunate in that process to make very key relationships. Um, uh, you know, uh, or whether it's relationships with DPs, Steven, who does our score this season, um, you know, came to us from, you know, with us from um, from 12 Monkeys. And then also just to know, look, you have to write to what you have, you know. Um, you can make a single room interesting uh, with, a, with a, a little bit of creativity and a little bit of, and, and if you know how to really craft character drama, um, we could have we found a way to set this whole season just, just on that bridge and never leave the bridge, um, you know, if, if we had to. And we would have created story that that made that work and 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 given you shifts in aesthetics so that you don't feel you know you never feel bored in a scene like you can use lighting to paint one room in multiple ways so that you know as the ship finds itself in different scenarios i've been in this room for five episodes now and yet it's looked different every time and so like you can really create the illusion and the feeling of scope uh you know without having necessarily the money to just throw it on screen and in a lot of ways you benefit from that um those limitations often help you because at the end of the day when you can't afford to go down to a planet or do like a giant 100 person phaser battle or something you either have to come up with one awesome stunt that you can afford to shoot or you have to come up with an amazing character scene to take its place so you know and a lot of times you end up that's you end up winning in that scenario because otherwise you might have just lazily defaulted to, okay, well, we can just do some dumb sci-fi shit here. So let's, because we can afford to, so let's do that. Um, and in here, we, we didn't have that luxury. We could never default to um, scope. We had to create that using what we had. And we're by no means a cheap show. I mean, we, we, had, we had good budget. We were well supported. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly we, we didn't have the resources of one and two. Some of that was um, coming out of COVID, you know, all of those challenges. <clears throat> Um, but you know, we, we were, I think we're able to make do with what we had pretty well. So did you guys, I mean, what, one of the things I've been saying to people about this season was it's essentially a bottle season, yeah. which is a genius thing. For those of you who don't know, a, a bottle show is when a show is shooting on standing sets and you're not going on location like in season two Yeah, and you've done things like reuse the Las Arena, I believe for the Shrike. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and all of the, the sets, I mean, making it a sub a space a battle, a space battle movie, cat and mouse thing really allows you to make four, four, four episodes and amortize those costs, which is right. genius. And if people go back and look at the original Star Trek, like Doomsday Machine, one of the great bottle episodes ever done for Star Trek, 
you're just on your standing sets and you put a little debris in them and now you're on the constellation yeah you know auxiliary control whatever when you guys were writing this season how much of the idea that you were going to be calling it a call it a bottle season for lack of of something but was that something that you guys consciously decided so you could do more and have more budget to do things within those sets that you might not have been able to do in terms of how you were shooting and or things yeah. like that yeah i mean there's there's a lot of considerations that 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 go into it you know we're we're bringing a lot of those original cast members back so sure. you know, obviously you want to be able to afford to do that and that's going to be more important than spending that money on a space battle or a new set or whatever. Um, so a lot of it is just, what's the story you're telling, right? And how much do you really need? Um, and then, okay, once you've spent all of that down, what do we have left? And then what limitations do we then have to overcome creatively, narratively, uh, et cetera. So you mentioned the strike and that's actually a really good example. You might notice uh, if you're uh, watching in the Lost Serena scenes, um, that most of those scenes in the last run take place in the up top section. You don't really see that sort of subsection that you would see. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. sort of a little behind the scenes, when it came time to create the Shrike, you know, you get into budgetary questions like, okay, the room that it takes on a sound stage, if we were just going to build a ship from scratch, you know, uh, what you know, building could the construction and the labor of creating the framework of that. Whereas we had an amazing production designer who looked down uh, into the bottom of the La Serena and said, well, what if we put a roof on that and use that square footage um, and create a whole new world down there and yeah. did it brilliantly. You never know if you, if you didn't know. That's what great television producing is. So mm -hmm. You just have to show up and be not just creative on the page, but creative in, in front of the camera. Um, and, and if you do that right in the right places, um, you really stretch a dollar. So speaking of stretch stretching dollars, you guys made a uh, Metallus Four work really well uh, up in Santa Clarita. Can you tell us a little bit about Metallus Four, uh, Terry's that, namesake? That was an amazing experience. I mean that that was one of the big spends, right, of the of the season. Like we knew we had to get um, out of the ship. We knew we had uh, to sort of even even though Metallus Four is very much a, it's a shady, shadowy, organized crime planet. Like we need to take a breath. We need to get off these ships. We need to have this story, um, you know, and even that is, is it is all set in one sort of section of the world, right? So even that is a consideration. Um, but uh, our production designer, Dave Blass, did an extraordinary job creating essentially a sci-fi city block in the deserts of Santa Clarita um, that, I mean, walking around that thing, the projections on the screen were all in real time. Like it, it you could have completely lost yourself in that set. Um, and, and he did it, uh, you know, uh, on a budget with nothing but just sort of, sort of creative execution. And um, we were so blessed that our crew this season is was was terrific. I mean, everybody did what was asked of them um, to the height of their ability and with like, you know, the minimum of waste. You know, nobody wasted anything. Every part of the animal was used. Um, and, and I think we got something that gives us real scope and that was an achievement. I mean, you know, just like you'd be hanging out in Sneed's bar while they were shooting scenes elsewhere. And you're like, I wish this was a functioning bar. Cause I would live here if I could. So, yeah. well, I, I will say that Robert made a good point on a different stream where he was talking about how it feels more like Star Trek when you're on a ship Yeah, and yeah. in previous 
seasons like like we were just out in la you know like it was like didn't feel like star trek but now like like we've got like like the the cat and mouse game and the nebula and just the fact that we're on a starship just makes it feel more like trek yeah and that was very much what we wanted to do we wanted to do a space story um because that's what trek is to us so you know we were blessed to do it so, Chris, Terry specifically credited you for a couple of things that we see this season, your ideas, but I can't remember the specifics. Can you tell us uh, what, what are some of the things that you attributed that ended up, ended up in the show specifically? I don't want to do that. Uh, I feel like <laughs> I did it already, but I forgot. I feel like I'm patting myself on the back. If you have specific examples, I will confirm or deny. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I will say that, you know, what I enjoy in, in, in the room is... Um, I enjoy, I, I really enjoy trying to come up with interesting, creative sci-fi solutions to things, you know, um, you know, and, and I don't, the, 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 the season is really a harmony of, you know, uh, many terrific voices. And so I'm very hesitant to take credit for any one thing, but I will say, oh. you know, I, I, I am proud of, I am a dialogue guy. Um, so if there is a line uh, that ever strikes you as probably being uh, too, if not obnoxiously clever, I probably, you can blame me. So um, I, I want to I ask you this. <laughs> Whose idea was it to throw the asteroid and who wrote the line, you're goddamn right I did. You're uh, goddamn right. <laughs> okay, I'll take credit for that. I think, I, think <laughs> I, I think it may have been my idea to throw the asteroid. I don't remember if I, if I, if I wrote the line. Um, that that script is 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 very much um, the, the the child of Terry and, and Sean Treader, who's an extraordinary writer. I was very um, blessed to, to co-write two with him, um, and comes from the monkeys world. Um, but uh, the 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 tractor beam stuff, like the symmetry of throwing the ship uh, and then throwing the asteroid, was something that we kind of planned early on. Um, was you know how do you do a reciprocal thing where he gets a little payback for the thing she did two episodes before? So. Um, all those little those little moments or stuff that are pre-planned, but I'm very hesitant to take credit for anything specific unless it's specifically uh, put out there. So, well, okay. wh- whose idea right. was it? To, whose idea was it to do the line "some dipshit from Chicago"? Uh, I I actually don't remember whether that was in the script or that was um, a. a, a a Stashwick improv. Um, I mean, like St- improv. Stashwick is from Chicago. Yeah, it 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 it's, it certainly speaks to Stashwick's personal life. Um, so it, it very well very well may have been something that he added to the character. Might have been added on the day. I'm not quite sure if that was in the first draft of the script or not. So we have a super chat from Admiral Taji Tiberius Monk for Knock 100. I think it's ten bucks. I'm having a the best time with Picard season three. Very first time in weekly series has me watching every episode twice. <laughs> Who wrote the scene with the asteroid throwing? I owe him or her an Norwegian cheese wheel. You can Please send that send to all of your cheeses too. And I will give you the address. <laughs> you can send it to me. I'll take it. Just with a giant Norwegian. You've had to get a lot of cheese, dude. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Oh God. Don't do that. Don't send me cheeses. Um, <laughs> Unless so, someone else wants to send me crackers or something. So, <laughs> so Jonathan Frakes has just been an inspiration this year, uh, this season. We know that he was hesitant to come back just from some stuff that Terry has shared. He's like, oh, I don't act anymore. I'm a director, and he's an amazing director. Uh, what do you say about his transformation into this, like, incredible actor this season? Like, he takes it to the next level, in my opinion, so. I don't think it's a transformation. I think it's always been there. I think um, 
I think it's amazing what you can do when certain guardrails are taken away from you, um, you know, and, and with what you're given. And we really tried to give him, tried to give everybody the best meal we could give them to work with, um, with, you know, uh, with genuine conflict this season in a way maybe that they had never really been able to explore in, in TNG proper. And, um, and, and he's, you know, he's, look, he's, he's an MVP, man. Like he's, he is one of the, coolest kindest cats i know like he's just a genuine person um and he's and for as much as he fills a room and for as big as his personality is he's genuinely humble he's genuinely kind treats his peers and his crew with respect and he shows up and he slays it um and and it's an honor and a privilege to work with him and i and i think um i i, I think he just did extraordinary in front of and behind the camera and and we just tried to give him you know uh, scenes to work with and and allow him to access the ability and i don't even want to say the potential but like the ability that we knew was there and i think he achieved it and then some i mean i think he's extraordinary this season you know speaking of jonathan franks i gotta ask as the only person who hasn't seen the full series on this panel and i don't know if the spoiler or not but do we see the Riker maneuver where he actually goes over the chair? Like, is that in the yeah. season? Uh, I don't believe Two legs so. That, was that, would be, oh. that would be an impressive feat. Those those chairs are very high back. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Never stopped them before. Right. <laughs> Can I just say that there's a really underrated moment in episode four, and it's a Shaw moment again, and it speaks to that. So that line about just some dipshit from Chicago, and uh, – you know, it's a, it's an incredibly intense uh, speech that he gives, and it's 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 wonderfully written and it's wonderfully performed. But uh, it's the moment when Picard and Seven go to his quarters afterwards yeah. to try to convince him to to work with them. And you know, so often in so many shows these days, it becomes about sort of emotionally hugging at hugging it out or screaming at each other or asking for apologies or you know. There's no hurt feelings. Like what I love about it is they just deal with it like guys who are professional military people. Like Picard goes there, he just says, "Yeah, I need your help, even if you are some dipshit from Chicago." And what's great about Shaw's response is that uh, there's such self-deprecation in that, yeah. in that moment. He he's like nice. He appreciates <laughs> oh, the put down. Right. He appreciates the put down in the sense that uh, he respects people who have the balls to go toe to toe and stand up for themselves, you know? And, and I think that that makes him all the more endearing as a character. Yeah. And the, his introduction to the series where he's at dinner and he started before them, he's just like power moving left and right and just putting Picard and Riker in their place. Like, like that was such a, that was probably the best introduction of a character I've seen in decades. Like it was, it was masterful. That, that scene, the, the dinner scene is a particularly uh, there was a particularly fun one. Um, it was it was it was fun to get under the hood of that and and try to figure out like how do you craft these lines that make him. I mean, he's t he's totally being a dick in that scene, but like he also has to kind of be a, like a likable dick. Like you have to be like well, he's not wrong, and and he's throwing his kind of cavalier weight around in a way that I find surprising, and you're like. But I, I think I kind of like him. And then, you know, <laughs> got to have the door open for endearing to him further throughout the season. So I, that scene was was a blast to write. So. 
Yeah, I think my favorite Shaw moment is, is when John Luke says, like, you know, Jack's my son. He just turns around. He's like, God damn it. Okay, right. let's do this. Yeah, like that That moment was 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 cla- that That's the moment where I was like, I want to see this guy have his own series. Yeah, because it's the moment, right, where, like, he he he's reached the edge of the nebula of his assholishness, right? Like, he's just like, I can't tell this guy we got to kill his kid, right? Like, so... You've just you're now you've pushed past all of his not all of his but you know the outer layer of his defenses into his humanity, and you're like okay there's a person behind this somewhere and then you get to know them in short order. So we got a super uh, chat from TN Toys. I think the Shrike is a brain ship. Given their link to the Dominion, would there be any link to the brain and Romulan supernova as their sole desire was for the Romulans during the Dominion War? Uh, how? The the connection to the Dominion War and what Vatic and her people want is a is a big mystery. So I, I won't even tip my hat one way or the other with that answer. That's a good. That's a really good answer, my friend. Yeah, yeah. We got a super chat from uh, Ian Carroll's Nicholas Meyer once said, "Art thrives on restrictions." In re- mm-hmm. reference to the budgetary constraints. Excellent. Anybody else have any questions for Chris on the panel? Um, yeah, what happens next episode? No, no, don't tell, don't, don't answer <laughs> that. Right. I'll just tell you. Um, uh, <laughs> next episode is a is a big one. It has big consequences. Um, I think it will leave uh, it will leave uh, fans in a really interesting place. It, it is one of the ones that you I will be on Twitter anxiously um, waiting to see what fans think of it. Five and six are are, are really really interesting. Wild. Uh, couplet of episodes so yeah, wow. uh, episode. I, I know you've a, a specific writing credit for six yeah. i believe and yeah, yeah. I, I would love to speak to you about that one because it, there's a lot there is a lot <laughs> i mean i i know all of the the youtube channels that deal with breaking down all the the the, the lore analysis and everything they're going to have a field day in particular with that one <laughs> right yeah. So, I would be I would be happy to to talk to you guys about that. Um, it, it's I'm very proud of six. Six is a very everyone killed it on that episode. So, well, Chris, it was lovely to meet you guys. Are going to have to bounce. Thanks so much for thank you, Dave. Good to see you, Dave. Dave. Yeah, we still need to be able to talk though. You and yes. I. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got man, super okay. chat from John. Yeah, all right, Dave. Thanks, man. We got super chat from John uh, Kakaza. Oh man, I can't say your Kikaza. last name. I'm sorry, Kakaza. We need Star Trek USS Titan following the adventures of Captain Shaw and his crew exploring the boundaries of known space, written and produced by the same team. Yeah, everyone has that same, pretty much the same opinion on that. So, And we're only four episodes in. So I imagine how, how much that opinion is going to further in by episode 10. Or episode yeah. 6. Well, we can tell you guys that uh, episode 4, is as wonderful and as great as it is, is just the beginning. Like, this just continues to get better and better every episode and uh you know i'm not afraid to say there are some moments where uh you know, i got a little choked up and maybe maybe shed a few tears and uh and i'm excited to see what everybody else is going to do here going forward chris we thank you so much do you have anything else you just want to share with us uh share with the fans no i i just want to thank you i want to thank everybody you know we we really did um make this with with love you know we we are all a, a small dedicated band of people who grew up with Trek in our DNA who have deeply personal uh, every, you could bring every writer on and they will tell you a story that will bring a, a tear to your eye about how they connected with Trek and why they and why Trek came into their lives and so you know we showed up to make something um, that was meaningful that mattered 
uh, that finished a story and opened some doors for new ones. Um, and, and it's really a love letter to something that matters for us. And I hope that that translates to the fans. I hope they're loving it. I hope they continue to love it. And any support um, that is shown by anybody, we humbly accept it. And we are deeply appreciative of you guys carrying the torch and banging the drum and um, whatever you need, you know, we are, we are here in appreciation for that. So. Yeah, Chris, I, I was hypercritical of new Star Trek, especially the first two seasons of Picard. And when these guys came to me and said, no, season three is going to be a banger. I was like, yeah, right. You know, like, I, I don't believe you. Um, he threatened by, me physically, by, Chris. Yes, he said uh, I was going to yes. come to my house and physically hurt, yeah. harm me. If I was by episode by episode four, like when Riker throws command to Picard, he sits down, you hear like the, the next gen theme come in. He's like, engage. I got chills down my spine. Like, like uh, at that moment, I was a convert. I, I was like, the podcast guys were right. God damn it. 100%. And like, like, I don't think you and Terry know just how important what you guys are doing is because when Terry came on this panel, he was surrounded by people who were hardcore anti Kurtzman track. Oh man, I felt bad. I felt like yeah, I contributed yeah. to like but, like a, a public flogging. Yeah, <laughs> but but, but what you guys have done is you've made every single one of the harshest critics, except maybe like you know one who shall not be named, um, fans of Star Trek again. Like that is a huge feat, and I, I gotta gotta tip my hat to you guys. You guys knocked it out of the park. It, it it matters to us what you guys think, and that that means that means a great it means a great deal. Um, we we were just trying to do the best version of something that we loved, and if we're true to that, then hopefully that resonates with the fans, and it seems to be doing that. Um, and there, like you said, there's there's six episodes. There's a wild ride left to go. So um, you know, we we appreciate everything. Chris, there's a super chat I from Grim. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Rob. Oh, I was going to ask one totally unrelated question because I, I I've I have not told Terry how much I've wanted to speak with you not about Star Trek. Okay, but I'm a huge horror. Guy. Yeah, I am surrounded by hundreds of horror novels, and I. What did you think of the new Hellraiser movie? <laughs> um, oh god, that's a complicated question. Uh, I, I, you don't have to answer it. I just figured I, since I have you here, I I, I have a very uh, intense relationship with the Hellraiser franchise. Oh, I, I know. Did a run of comic books. I don't know if you read them. Um, I, I worked very closely with Clive to develop what was kind of an alternate third movie in comic book format to the to the first two. Um, I I really like Bruckner as a director. I think The Night House is is quite a good film. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so I think there are things... Uh, I certainly don't want to be critical. I mean, to get anything made is a miracle. Um, I, I will say there are certain... There are real big swings. It, it is by far um, the best... It, it is the best of the Hellraiser sequels after two or three. Um, in, in that it tries something, it has a vision, it clearly is doing something a little bit slow in, 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 in to get going, but then kind of when it does, you're like, oh shit, this is bonkers. Um, so there are, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but I will gladly have a conversation with you about Clive and horror any day of the week. So yeah, I, I, uh, yes, I was lucky to interview Clive 15 years ago at length yeah. and I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of Clive Barker. Yeah, Clive is a mentor and friend of mine, and, and I had written two two feature films uh, for him based off of um, pieces of work of his. Clive was the one who first introduced me to um, Stephen King, who optioned uh, a story to me um, 
which I had adapted, which kind of got me my my first uh, representation in the field and stuff. So it, it really is Clive that I that I credit with um, sort of uh, kicking off my career as a writer. And so I'm, I'm happy to have a conversation with you uh, any other time. We can we can talk. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. I just thought I'd get you now. We yeah. got a super chat from Grim. He uh, he's asking about the lighting again. We did answer that already, Grim. Uh, it was a stylistic choice. It's trying to be more cinematic, but thank you for the super chat. We're actually going to do. You know, there's an episode coming up. You'll see where it's uh, only people with lighters. Uh, just right. light, light, the entire support. episode is just lighters. Yeah, it's, that's all it is. So you're really going to love that one. Another um, question from Dan Candy: uh, Will we get a scene of the crew singing? <laughs> and I can't pronounce that. <laughs> I must know. That's from that's uh, Deep song. Space Nine. I Move see. along that's home. Um, and just one more thing to say. You know, I, I, it's it's. It's important mm. that like I am one voice in a choir here, you know, and I'm really happy to, to, to speak for the show for you guys to have me on to answer these questions. But, you know, I, it is important for folks to know we had a tremendous writer's room. Um, you know, everybody in that room is deeply passionate about this, is deeply skilled. You could have an equally, you know, probably more so interesting conversation with any one of those people any day of the week. And, and we were all just serving the vision of Terra Metallis. So uh, I'm very happy to have talked to you guys for an hour and 40 minutes. But um, my voice is one of many, many voices that contributed to the chorus of the show. And so um, all of whom uh, made it what it is. So to the fans and to them, you know, the, you know I, we, we are deeply appreciative. So. Well said. So so some things on that. Uh, Trek, Trek fans mm-hmm. said, I want, I want to enjoy Star Trek Picard with my kids. Just as my parents let me watch Star Trek TNG, why not cut the cuss words so that Star Trek Picard can be enjoyed with the next generation? We talked about that a little earlier, but I, I will say this. I mean, this is this the theme of this season, right? In some ways, is how do we change as we grow and how do we stay fundamentally the same? And so it, it would be difficult to address how those characters went from being younger adults to older adults. <laughs> Um, without doing that, without some adult context. So, you know, um, you know, if by the time you get to the end of the season, you feel like it's something you, you want to show and can show to your kids, there's only two F-bombs and you can locate them easily and fast forward past them. And, and um, uh, you know, and, and I apologize to whatever degree you bristle at it. But, um, you know, we, we, we do think of these things and consider these things. It's important to us as well. So. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you know, you can find those moments pretty easily. Also, you know, you can start off with Prodigy with your kids, which Prodigy yeah. was, uh, you know, at first I I was like, I'm not watching a cartoon. And then I watched, I'm like, oh my God, this is Star Trek. You know, and uh, it's pretty it was pretty good. It was beautiful. Yeah. I know yeah. Go ahead. a lot of writers over on Prodigy and they are diehard Trek fans and, and terrific writers in their own right. So, you know, if, if, if you're looking for family-friendly fare, there it is. Good point. Yeah, it's very friendly. Okay, real quick. Uh, Sam Ann, just wanted to extend my thanks for the pure quality of this season to Chris and Terry. The first four episodes took me back to DS9 and the Jem'Hadar hunting the Defiant. It's great to have hopeful Trek back. Um, additionally, Chris, and I can't find the Super Chat, I'm sorry, but Chris uh, Kakaza asks, Chris, any chance this season can be re-edited into a trilogy movie uh, box set for collectors? Seems like it would fit well in a movie format. Uh, I, who knows? I mean, uh, certainly I think that there is, there's one cohesive 10 hour story that is told. I'm sure, I'm sure our genius editors could get in there and, and edit any number of ways. Um, by the way, our editing team on the show is killer. Uh, Drew, our editor is insanely 
talented and really should just edit everything always. So. <laughs> Anthony Pearson says, I love the Titan is almost a character in season three. That's proper Star Trek. Yeah, has to be. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Blast killed it with the, uh, with the, it just look, they look like models. Just, you know, just, uh, so gorgeous. Yeah. JT asked, uh, did Chris join the stream because of Kadish? Oh, that's an inside joke. Yeah. Sorry. Everyone's here because of me. Right. right. You know? <laughs> um, I'm not popular. You know, Andre Benson said episode four felt like it could have been a mid-season finale. Yeah. I mean, a lot of TV uh, nowadays does literally cut off at like five, four or six episodes and make you wait a month and a half. This, yeah. this could have been that. It is the end of the beginning. So uh, we're now we're now kind of into the season proper, and uh, and then there's one hell of a finale. So, yeah, I think Terry called it like the first act or something like that. If yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Uh, Patty says Kirk said you cling on bastards in Star Trek Six. It's accurate. Ooh. Anthony uh, Peterson says love that so far the main characters in season three have tight and developed arcs, and season three has a cinematic feel to it. Hope the Paramount Plus Trek continues this as do we me too yes uh, yeah <laughs> big worm also said exactly the crew is featured for sure but the characters make sense they know their job and are professional they are starfleet i want to see more mm. and good t nice house says at times we think big explosions and actions is what sells with trek fans a bridge cordos uniforms and rank are the recipe for epic stories yep and uh, we totally agree i agree all right Okay. One more, guys. Son of John. Guys, stop belly aching over the lighting. Let's get a spinoff with Terry Metellus at the helm. Then the lighting can be whatever it likes. By the way, Rob, I'm in you and Chris's shuttle bay. Bye, camper. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> yeah, that's a private. That's Well, that's not really private, but it's definitely an in-joke into my personal professional situation sounds very private i don't know well uh, it's not private <laughs> i found what? out about it on the internet uh oh let's let's finish with this super chat i i just wanted to say thanks the season is what we trek fans wanted it's been great so far hope you guys get a chance to do more thank you thank you it's obvious that the love and the hope is there and uh i think uh if you guys want more you know one of the things that we have set up we have set up a a change.org, um, one, just one of the ways that you can help support is go to terrytrek.com. It's a change.org petition. You can sign that. We're going to be pushing that out to as many people as possible. Try to get Paramount's attention so they can make sure they see how much this show is loved. I mean, we did it with Strange New Worlds, right? Uh, put out a petition, then everybody attacked Alex Kurtzman at Comic-Con, and he finally gave in. So, you know, we just have to uh, be persuasive. Um, I do want to thank um, Chris so much. Thank you for coming here. It's been such a blessing to have you. Uh, Robert, thank you so much. Dave, for being on the show. And, of course, our friend uh, Matt Kadish from the Salty Nerd Podcast. Um, do you guys want to share anything you got going on coming up, Rob? No, you know, just more episodes of this. I am doing a Picard after show every Thursday. Uh, we did it with Todd Stashwick last week. And uh, Bill Hunt from the Digital Bits and I have been going through each episode for a long time period of time and it's a lot of fun and again we ask that you would watch it <laughs> but you can f watch it before we don't want to spoil it for you uh, i will say that episode five has one of my favorite exchanges between characters in a long time <laughs> and I it's agree. a long time coming and uh, i was very surprised seeing it so you you star trek fans are going to be very happy amen so matt uh, you know, Chris, thank you for coming on and answering all these uh, stupid questions I had. No. Uh, but uh, 
Uh, I used to work at Paramount uh, Studios, and I, I have some friends there who who went up, came up with Terry when back when he was on like you know uh, the Star Trek shows, and I've been bugging him through them to come on the Salty Nerd podcast and let us interview him about Twelve Monkeys because it's one of my all time favorite series, and and now I'm gonna have to start bugging you to come on <laughs> and also talk about Twelve Monkeys because let me tell you something that is the only TV show or movie or TV show um, that has ever gotten time travel right. <laughs> and it's so hard to do that, you know, it's rare. Like when I was watching that series, I was legit like, oh my God, these guys actually thought this through and they got it right. And and I think that that show, you know, they can lay claim to fame as being the only show to ever get time travel right. So props to you on that. And I hope uh, you'd consider coming on with Terry to talk um, uh, with us about that show. I will happily talk 12 Monkeys with anybody anytime. So you just give me the give me the time and date and I'll be there. From Ghost Rider to all those involved in Picard Season 3, may your work bring glory to you and your house. Kapla. Well said. And on that note, next week, if you guys want to come back, we'll have season Picard Season 3 production designer Dave Blass on the show. He's going to be talking. And, of course, Chris mentioned him a couple of times and some of the great things that he did for the season. So we're excited to talk to him next week. Also, don't forget to uh, to check out that extra wallet link if you guys didn't get a chance. Uh, the link is in the description below, 25% off your order. Gentlemen, we appreciate you guys. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we cannot wait to see, Chris, Episode 5 coming out in just a few days. Thank you again for being here, everybody. <laughs>